You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me, my co-host is David Leach from ITK Analysts. David, how are you? Very well, Giles, and I trust all our listeners are well, and uh, we've got a special guest as usual this week. I've got an interview in the bag with Mark Barrington from Simic Energy, and we'll have a listen to that later. And there's an awful lot to discuss today, David, with the government's been, um, been ever since the, start of the be- since the start of the week, have been on a rampage, making announcements on climate policies and energy policies, and um, I'm really looking forward to getting your view on that. But let's just start with something that we didn't get round to last week because we were talking to California about their 100% renewable energy. We've long talked about New South Wales and the absence of policy there. What did you make of Labor's policy announced last week for another 7 gigawatts of large-scale generation, 4 gigawatts in the first term, and I guess that adds on to the 2 gigawatts they expect to encourage through their um, rooftop solar rebate scheme? Yes, well, I, I think that's very positive. Uh, Adam Searle, I know, has spent a long time, we interviewed him for this podcast, uh, developing that policy. It marks a clear contrast between uh, what the Liberal Party is promising, which is nothing very much. And um, I've long, and many others, the, the uh, people have harboured concerns about New South Wales. It's a net energy importer already, and it's certainly going to become more so um, when, when the deal closes. And, and uh, we think that some of the other coal-fired power stations may close earlier than the market expects. And, and I, you know, several times noted that we just don't think the current state government is doing enough, and this is not a really a political statement, to actually get the problem fixed. In addition, uh, we know because Amy Keane, the renewable energy advocate, made it clear that New South Wales only has 1,800 megawatts of transmission uh, connection ability within the state. That's not enough for Labor, uh, and it's not enough for anyone, and it's a, it in itself is a cause for concern. Yeah, well, look, that's interesting. Look, um, we were going to defer discussion about New South Wales and all the transmission, oh, sorry, New South Wales, the federal government and its, and its transmission links um, to later on the, uh, after the uh, our pre-recorded interview, but let's go into them now. What do you make then of some of the Snowy 2.0 proposals that um, that have been unveiled this week? The government injection of $1.4 billion. Snowy's request, of course, to have a um, an exemption from the regulate, regulatory process known as RIT-T to get the extra transmission lines down to Victoria. And I guess the, after that we can move on to Hydro Tasmania. But look, let's look at Snowy 2.0. Um, I'm, um, I'm a bit befuddled by this. Well, the, um, first of all, in the financing, given that the federal government owns it, putting $1.4 billion effectively of equity in there uh, is, isn't, I don't see that as a problem. Any business that wants to undertake a major capital program needs to raise some equity typically to do it. And uh, that's, that's fine as far as that goes. Do you think it means that they're struggling with their business case, though? Does it mean, for instance, that they're struggling to no, get finance? No, in the short instance uh, is the short answer, Giles. I don't know what the business case looks like, but... Uh, we haven't been told. <laughs> no, we, and that's a complaint which we'll get to. But, I mean, let's say when AGL bought MacGen, they raised some equity 
in the market to do that. And that turned out as, you know, to be very profitable in the short term. It's absolutely traditional for businesses to raise equity when they undertake major investments. And so I, I don't have any, I don't think it says anything other than that. Where I, um, Snowy 2, I mean, it, 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 it's an interesting pumped hydro project. Many people believe that pumped hydro has quite a big place to play uh, in the world of high renewable energy. I'd have to agree uh, with that. But is this the, right, the project? Yes. Uh, the, 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 the point about Snowy Hydro has always been about government uh, ownership of it and the fact that there was no process in, uh, gone through to prove that this was the best of the available projects. And the, uh, I, I, that's, that's essentially, and of course, the government has in essence made that worse by not releasing the full business case. Uh, we've seen a number of criticisms. We, I wrote one myself about the day after it was announced. <laughs> uh, and I don't think anything has changed very much since then. Other people have written much more detailed and, and perhaps more accurate points, but it appears to be an expensive project. Uh, um, and the trouble for everyone is always getting value for all the, there's a mismatch between the amount of storage and the amount of power. Snowy Hydro will become more valuable uh, if beyond this initial two gigawatts in another 10 or 20 year, 10 years, 15 years, they add another two gigawatts on another two gigawatts. It has these incremental expansions, which would all require, uh, I suppose, additional tunnels in the national park. And I'm pretty sure people will start complaining. But if to really to take advantage of the massive amount of storage that it's got, uh, requires more power capacity than they're building in the first instance. And I suppose without the business case and the financials, we're not really able to um, to make any assessment about whether this is actually better value than doing other things. There's lots of other different pumped hydro projects. There's lots of other battery storage projects which are available. We just don't know. And the only modelling we've seen so far is from the modelling that was done in the initial um, pre-feasibility pre study, which suggested that um, if anything, black coal generation is going to be favoured in the short in, in the short term, and um, the AEMO through its integrated system plan came to the um, the same conclusion. We haven't got any evidence that this is not the case, even though we're told that um, that it shouldn't be the case. So you know, if we put uh, an argument to one side about whether this is the best or most competitive project. Uh, what I see as the main advantages for it are firstly, that it will actually facilitate the fast building of some new transmission, <laughs> uh, which is uh, urgently needed, but it's also going to screw up, in my opinion, uh, New South Wales to Victorian transmission while it's being built. And that's going to be a problem for a lot of people or runs the risk of being a problem. And secondly, it will do something to increase the amount of dispatchable generation, maybe more expensively than is required, uh, available in New South Wales. And given that I personally expect uh, that New South Wales coal generation is expensive, uh, and therefore we're going to see imports from Victoria and Queensland into New South Wales, and the risk of an early closure of another New South Wales coal generator, it's actually great to have something there uh, that can do the dispatchable side of it. Interesting stuff. Look, we were going to go to Tassie Hydro and some of the things down there, but look, I'm going to flip over now to this pre-recorded interview. Um, this is Mark Barrington. He's the CEO of Cymec Energy, which is the energy company which is majority owned by Sanjeev Gupta's GFG Alliance. And Sanjeev Gupta, of course, being the buyer of the Wayala Steelworks and the man who wishes to solarise Australia with um, large-scale solar and battery storage. Let's have a listen to Mark Barrington from Cymec Energy. 
Mark Barrington, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Thanks very much, Giles. It's it's great to be here. You are Chief Executive of Cymec Energy, but in effect that has two businesses. Cymec Energy, which we understand is the um, player in the, um, the bigger energy markets, as I understand, and Zen Energy, which is a player in the household battery and, um, and, 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 and solar business, I presume. Yeah, that, that's right, Giles. In fact, you're almost one of the first people uh, that uh, that has picked this up. We were previously Cymex Zen Energy, but but what we found was a couple of things occurred. One, one, it was confusing to to people as to who did what, but two, it it meant that um, we we because of the space that we're in with large commercial industrial customers and. Uh, and large-scale development of renewables, uh, that's a serious kind of business. Um, when you're engaging in uh, business to consumer, uh, your brand needs to have, uh, I guess, a bit more personality. And so what's separating those two businesses, I guess, by brand allows us to do is to have a bit more personality uh, for the Zen Energy brand and then still carry on our business uh, as Cymec Energy, um, supporting and working with our um, large commercial and industrial customers. Well, I'd love to talk to you in more detail about each of those businesses, but just for the sake of um, the listeners, let's just row back and just sort of see where this came from. Now, Cymic Energy is now majority owned by uh, Sanjeev Gupta's GFG Alliance. Is that right? That, that's right. Um, yes. Sanjeev uh, came and, and bought uh, 51% of, of what was in energy at the time uh, back in November of 2017. Around right about the time he bought the Wyala Steelworks yeah, that, that's right. And, and really, it was a recognition that um, to to make manufacturing uh, and industry work uh, in, in this country, you need to develop a solution that, that has sustainability uh, as its hallmark in, in, in all facets, whether it's the environment, whether it's on uh, the, the cost side. Um, it was important to, to the GFG business that um, that energy play, a, play an important part, and because it, it certainly does in, in the cost base, but to deliver it in a way that, that can be cost effective and uh, and and uh, valuable in a, in a sustainability sense. I'd like to go down that path very soon, but just to recap on the history. Now, Zen Energy was actually founded as an Adelaide-based company. Um, and at one stage, I think just before the takeover by Sanjeev Gupta, it was chaired by Ross Garner. This is, that, that's right? That, that's right. Look, we're, we're fortunate to still have Ross on our board. Um, Sanjeev is chairman and, and Ross is president. Um, you know, the, the, the DNA, I guess, that, that, uh, that came from Zen is, is still very much there today. You know, it, it started very early days of solar in Australia. Um, in, in back in 2004 and and there was one of the early adopters uh, in, in battery storage technology um, back in the time when uh, it was more the thinking that uh, batteries would uh, be would enable you to be islanded from the grid um, so that the sort of turn of the, to the 2010s whereas now um, and I think wisely where we're getting to is that solar plus battery in a home allows you to be more integrated um, to uh, to the grid. And I think that, that part's really exciting. Yeah, well, I'd like to um, chase that one down as well. Just going back to the wholesale markets then, 
If I read The Australian correctly this week, um, basically what they're saying is that a high level of renewables is basically going to mean the end of manufacturing and refineries and steelworks and what have you. I mean, clearly Sanjeev Gupta has a different view about this and he's kind of underscored the fact that the way out of steelworks was bought on the basis that he thought he could reduce costs significantly through clean energy. So is it right to say that you are implementing that strategy in Australia, that you are at once, you're you're expanding your retail offering in each and every state, I think, just about, maybe not WA, plus you're sort of, um, you're you're putting into place the strategy to, to, well, I think, as he described it, help solarise the economy. Look, in, in many respects, we're not reinventing or inventing the wheel uh, as, as far as saying that renewables, uh, with coupled with firming and uh, efficient use of the, the wholesale or financial markets that operate within energy, uh, th- that they can deliver a price that's lower uh, than, than the current market price. Um, I, I don't it's for me it's 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 just not disputable um and, and so unfortunately it is though isn't it <laughs> well it, it is but uh, unfortunately energy is one of those things where it, it takes uh, longer than a 20 second uh, uh, segment on, on a news piece which is why I, I find this podcast great because it it, it gives the time um, to to discuss us what is uh, what i find anyway a, a, just a fascinating topic but um I'm very confident that uh, that uh, Simec Energy can build uh, large-scale solar, couple it with battery. Uh, we're looking at pumped hydro storage. We've just completed a pre-feasibility study uh, on a site uh, at Middleback uh, Ranges in, in South Australia. I'm very confident, um, because I know we're, we're currently doing it with uh, only using uh, third-party PPAs, that we can end up delivering a globally competitive energy price uh, for, for our customers, which happen to be GFG uh, customers, but also uh, other customers like the South Australian government, um, Hillgrove Resources and Adchem and so forth, and other, other customers that, that fall within, um, uh, within our group. I just pick up on the um, the pre feasibility study. Sorry, I couldn't get my uh, pre's and my fees together. The pre feasibility study for the uh, pumped hydro. So, what what has that told you? Uh, look, it's told us a couple of things. One, uh, pumped hydro uh, is is complex. Um, it's told us that uh, you know there's five uh, or so projects that uh, that are vying to to get up in South Australia. It's told us that it's within the mix. Uh, and it's also told us h- how it will work uh, in with the existing mine site. Um, so look, as you know, pre-feasibility studies uh, really lead you on to the next set of questions and, and that's what we're going to mm. proceed to. Um, but uh, in terms of improving uh, reliability and and enabling that firming that's required that, that, that comes from uh, a portfolio of wind and solar, uh, we're very confident that it will it will and, and can play a, um, a very positive role. You've put in a um, a bid, I think, or at least I think a request for proposal, what it is, or an expression of interest, a registry of interest. I think it finally came down to to what um, what I've now learned is called the fungi, which is the uh, federal um, underwriting new generation initiative or something like that. So, um, now, your proposal, as I understand it, is for a $1 billion plus mixture of solar plus various forms of storage. I don't know whether it's battery or pumped hydro or both. Um, are you confident of winning that? Uh, look, I, I don't, uh, I would never propose to to forecast what uh, what uh, government will, will decide. But 
I think the, the most important thing for me is that um, the support that, that could come out of, of good government policy is going to enable us to have uh, provide a better service, a better offering for, for our customers. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the platform that, that, that my business is on is, is one of uh, openness and transparency with our customers. Um, and we would see that those uh, savings that we could get if, if it, it comes to uh, providing what they, what the, one of the options is providing a put, which would enable us to get a better rate of financing, uh, certainly a more competitive rate of financing, uh, that, that would go and flow to our customers, which as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, flow well beyond uh, just, uh, just GFG. Mm. And um, so you've got plans, I think, initially all, um, for a, is it 280 megawatt solar farm at Kaltana, I think, which is not very far from um, Wyala, plus these hydros. Are they dependent on the result of this underwriting um, tender or at what stage do you just sort of plough on? Look, we're, we're aiming to get to financial, uh, sorry, final investment decision by by June 30 of this year, I think any developer of renewables in this country uh, would recognise that uh, no, no project gets up with um, with substantial margins left on the table. So they'll always be competitive. Um, uh, for us, uh, like I said before, um, any benefit we can get, we can then ascribe back into uh, a low-cost energy portfolio that can be delivered to uh, to, to our customers. Um, it's not just about providing low price because, as you know, um, uh, energy cost is what you is what you use as well as the price that you, you use it at. Um, and so, some of those examples of, of projects that we're working on, we, we've got a great um, a great opportunity at the moment with a large mine a miner in in South Australia that's looking at a, a new mine site. Um, it, it is one of those situations where it's it's a, a win-win. So we're sitting down working with them of what the energy market will require in uh, three plus years time in terms of how that mine site and their processes could interact in a demand side response way. And then we're, we're providing them with what our portfolio uh, needs might be and trying to link those two to try and get sort of an optimal outcome. Um, and so again, it's about that transparency and, and ability to work with customers that I think that coupled with um, what can be achieved working uh, with government, uh, I think can deliver very positive outcomes for, um, for industry and, and manufacturing sectors in, in this country. It certainly seems that a lot of the big energy users now have kind of moved on. Now they don't simply think, OK, I'm going to create a new business, I'm going to open a new mine, I'm looking at expanding my manufacturing facilities or my refinery. They kind of now know, or do they, or, or I'm assuming they now know, that um, you know, having a coal plant if you're on the grid or having diesel or gas if you're sort of off-grid and doing it yourself is not the only option. There's actually some other smarter ideas that combine, as it seems that you're discussing with this um, client here, a mixture of renewables, a mixture of backup and storage and what have you, plus demand management. Um, it sounds like a much smarter way of going forward. Uh, I, I think it definitely is. And, and, and that in itself will play part of the transition. Um, often, I, I think that the, the discussion that we have is is just so focused on the supply side, um, whereas you know where you that the, you talk about the generation options that might come from thermal or or um, or, uh, or renewables, but the 
the ability for the demand side to play a role in both improving reliability and managing the intermittency, I think, is is so far um, only just touched the surface, and and that's certainly an area um, that we're going to um, uh, play a very big role with our customers, um, utilising new technologies as they as they come to hand. Uh, but again, just that that sort of ability to transparently operate with your uh, with your customer. You're in the business of providing um, what I think you describe as baseload renewables to to customers, and um, I'd like to get on to how that's going in the, in the different states very shortly. But um, presumably then with baseload renewables, what you're talking about is sort of fundamentally a supply of wind and solar energy and wrapped around that sort of various firming things. You've looked at, um, you started looking at a battery near Wyala, and I presume you might be looking at batteries elsewhere in the grid. One, is that the case? And two... And, what needs to happen in the terms of market rules and regulations and the recognition of the value stream of batteries, what needs to happen there before they become you know, the no-brainer that one suspects they either need, need to be or should be or will be in the future? I think certainly you know, the, the likes of the Hornsdale Power Reserve has, has been fantastic um, for, for the market in terms of being able to understand the types of markets that it can play within. Um, Battery we see as as, as being uh, an addition to a portfolio that possibly will require um, uh, fuel fossil fuel generation in, in terms of peaking plant for for the near term, and then that would be again coupled with with pumped hydro storage. Um, what um, what still needs to be played out though is is how batteries can be used as a hedging tool within within a retail. Uh, portfolio. Uh, we think it can happen and we've got some uh, some good plans for how we might use our, our, our battery which is, which will be called the Playford Utility Battery just south of Port Augusta. Um, we're looking to, to do... The pub. The pub, indeed. The pub. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> um, a good name for a battery. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but look, you know, our, our proposal is to is that we would use that to, to into the existing ancillary service, services markets, looking to use it as, a, as an input to fast frequency response, but then also using it again for our... Um, to, to manage the... Uh, needs of, 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 of what is a you know, not insubstantial retail portfolio. Mm. Tell me about this portfolio that you're growing then. Um, I think um, um, you better clarify for me which states you're in. You've, you've just announced in the last week or so that you're moving into Victoria. So presumably you've been in many other states so far. So tell us where you've been and how it's going. So currently, um, you know, our, our contracted load is South Australia based. Um, we've got about one, just over one, 1.2 terawatt hours of, of customer load, um, and we're hoping for some um, some good wins coming up uh, in Victoria and uh, and uh, sort of north of north of there. Um, as you know, or might know, Giles, the 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 contracted energy market uh, moves slowly, um, and uh, particularly the sorts of propositions we're working with on customers take time. Um, but certainly, we, we have a, a power purchase agreement in Queensland, uh, two power purchase agreements uh, with Worsoil and Neo in, in, in Victoria. We'll look to use those, and then once we uh, get Kaltana over the line, coupled with the the, uh, the Playford battery, um, you know, we'll start to have a, a, a larger spread of um, of assets around uh, around the NEM. Tell me then about the um, home battery and um, and solar market. How's that looking? I'm I'm guessing in South Australia it looks pretty damn good at the moment because there's this um, home battery um, support scheme that's going on. 
Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's it's really exciting, actually. We're, we're starting to see some incredible interest uh, from the home battery scheme. Um, you know, Zen Energy in itself has nearly 30,000 installations to its name um, and, and all those customers are now re-engaging. Re um, we, we think it's going to be a great opportunity and that later down the track, this notion of using virtual power plants, which... Um, you know, were really championed, I guess, by AGL in the in the early days, but but now just makes so much sense to be able to utilise that that aggregated power. Um, we don't yet have that capability, and I, and I don't suggest we're we're going into that uh, immediately. But but once we um, uh, once we do what we need to do in the larger uh, larger markets, certainly that Zen Energy brand would be uh, would be perfect um, to uh, to look to provide uh, energy again with that same aim of of uh, partnership with customer, uh, but but lower lower lowering their energy cost using um, their battery storage uh, and generation that they could have on their roofs. It's interesting. So the virtual power plant, then you're quite satisfied, is actually a real thing, and um, these um, these things can be aggregated and um, orchestrated and, and and deliver a useful service, um, both to grid um, in terms of sort of delivery of you know sort of um, just just raw electrons and also grid services then. Uh, absolutely, and I, I guess it's just part of the transition that, that we're going through in the energy space. Um, yes, there are going to be bumps on the road, and, and you know, for me, that that's what makes it uh, all the more interesting. Um, but uh, certainly, the technology seems to be there um, for the Playford utility battery. We're we're looking at um, various dispatch algorithms. Initially, when we when we started down that process, the dispatch algorithms were principally focused on just the operation of, of the battery itself. Um, now where we're up to is, is we're working with some fantastic organisations where it's looking at the dispatch of the battery, but in optimization of both uh, you know, a retail portfolio and the ability to um, work on demand side with, um, with commercial and industrial customers. So um, I think this transition is, is moving quickly. And I think the important thing um, for all participants in the market is to be open, um, to to be out ready to to try technology as it comes in and, and certainly to to um, uh, use use the assets uh, slightly differently. Um, and I think that's going to be the secret um, to to one making sure that the transition occurs with with the least amount of wrinkles but but getting to an energy price that delivers um, fair value but but then also um, reliability and, and most importantly, um, uh, a reduction on our emissions. A couple of fascinating things I'd like to pick up on there. Um, one, so I mean, the battery is just going to be in. It's well, it's going to be really quite sophisticated and quite complicated. Not 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 just imagine a matter of just flicking on a switch on or off or whatever. Um, all sorts of algorithms about how it will play and what it will do and at what particular time, and um, presumably taking advantage of its sort of speed and versatility, as we've already seen with the um, Hornsdale unit. I mean, that's what we see is the versatility of a battery is is it can do multiple things. Um, uh, there is also, but but it can do multiple things, but only for a short period of time. Uh, then you look at what pumped hydro can do, which which has a, a a slightly and only slightly less limited range, but can go for for longer periods. And then you know just into that energy mixes as we go through as we, you know because we still need to focus on reliability the use of thermal plants whether it's gas or, or diesel um, to ensure that um, uh, you know those those peak areas of demand can be managed um, 
to me, it just becomes this magical symphony um, that, that's required for, uh, for the energy market. And are you confident then that ultimately, because I guess this is the question that most consumers ask, and um, whether they be big consumers or small consumers, that, okay, we're going down this energy transition, we're shifting from a fossil fuel base, we're going to end up with, you know, pretty much damn, damn near close to 100% renewables. Uh, we're going to have all this other clever equipment and demand side response and batteries and storage and, and goodness knows, you know, virtual power plants and aggravated output and all, aggravated, um, aggregated output and all this sort of stuff. Would it actually end up being cheaper? Uh, th that's certainly the goal. Um, just by looking at the um, the, the uh, levelised costs of energy of the different technologies, um, and, and understanding the retirement of existing thermal plant, which which will transition out of of the energy space, um, you know, from 2022 onwards, um, that replacement will be from cheaper, shorter run, uh, marginal costed uh, energy from solar and from, from wind. Um, and, you know, we're seeing it in real time. I mean, I can remember uh, starting in a wind uh, turbine OEM uh, sort of three and a half years ago, and it was not, uh, you wouldn't get kicked out of the room with the levelised cost of energy from a wind farm in Australia at $90 a megawatt hour. Um, by the time I left, uh, you know, probably nine months ago, um, fifty-five dollars was was almost the the norm. Um, that I find absolutely exciting, and and you know that I guess Giles answers your your question of you know what what's going to deliver a, a lower cost in the long run. And t to me, it's it's a market that is sensibly mixed with renewables and uh, and firming uh, generation. I guess my concern is that probably for a few years now we've actually been paying for um, a price of electricity which is far beyond the actual cost of delivery and I guess that's sort of you know a problem that sort of the nature of the markets, the uncertainty about policy and uh, what we pay for networks but um, hopefully that uh, when we do lock in these even cheaper sources of delivery then we can actually um, lock in lower prices for consumers. Now um, just sort of finish off you guys are based in south australia and south australia has been all the headlines and all the news over the last couple of years about its high levels of uh, renewable energy penetration the blackout and the load shedding that followed and the political wrestle over renewables etc etc in south australia now what where, where is where is the discussion about um the energy transition uh, well, just geographically, Giles, I'm I'm actually based in Melbourne. Um, and, and, <laughs> well, there you go. But uh, but How's I, it going I, down there then? <laughs> it's wonderful. But but uh, but I am lucky enough to uh, to go. We obviously have offices in in South Australia as well, and I'm lucky enough to go there there quite regularly. Look, uh, my my take on South Australians is is they're just getting on, um, and, and I think you see that in every possible way. Um, the the support that they're giving to to Riverlink, uh, to providing additional interconnection, uh, the support that uh, governments of both persuasions still provide to to renewables in a in a sensible application. I think the the regulators that that are there uh, are looking at the market sensibly. Um, you know, the addition of the OTR is I think is a positive. Um, in my mind, uh, transition in anything, if you look at any technology or environment, um, occurs over time. And as, as, as we've found, the transition gets shorter and shorter. And those that win are those that embrace it. And I think, um, you know, when you look at what South Australia has achieved, um, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great positive. 
you talk about a very quick transition. Care to predict where we might be in five or ten years' time? <laughs> I certainly hope, uh, Giles, that, that we're in a state of greater uh, policy predictability uh, than, than we are now. And, and I think... Um, I hope we don't have to wait that long, though. <laughs> uh, look, I think it's coming. I, I think it's coming. And, and, I, and the important thing here is is predictability as opposed to certainty. I, I'm, I'm not one of those that, that cry for uh, we need certainty in the energy market because, um, you know, it's if, if uh, you want a free market, um, uh, you've got to take the good with the bad in business and, and, and uh, very few businesses that I'm aware of uh, in Australia live a life of uh, complete certainty given the, the competition in global markets. But, but a state of, of uh, policy predictability, I think, is one that will just achieve such great benefits to what other the reason that we all exist, which is the end consumer and the customer. So, so that uh, that certainly feels like it's it's on its way, and uh, and I, I look forward to that. And and that to me is the last piece in the puzzle. Uh, once we get that, um, then then the, almost the five year prediction uh, doesn't matter because um, we now would then have a a well functioning uh, energy space in a country that's just got such great natural resources for energy. Um, that uh, that we can't not but uh, do do well. It seems to me that's general agreement and possibly the frustration at the moment is that we've got the technology here, we know what we can do, all that we lack actually is a political will and a vision and um, and a plan. Um, and once we get all that in place, then um, then it'll go. Um, it'll all happen quite quickly and quite uh, beneficially. Mark, um, thank you very much for joining um, Energy Insiders. It's been a fascinating conversation and um, good, luck, um, good luck in the future. Thanks very much, Giles. It was a pleasure. That was Mark Barrington from Simec Energy. Um, interesting stuff, David. Um, I was particularly interested in his comments about the underwriting program put forward by the government and um, the fact that uh, having a government finance there would lower costs for um, projects like his. Um, I guess some of the other interesting things is that the government appears to have already decided on one of the winners, at least, of the um, underwriting project, um, Tasmania Hydro, and um, an un unidentified pumped hydro project somewhere in Tasmania, which they've, uh, which they've agreed to underwrite. Is this the right way of going about things? Well, again, Hydro Tasmania has put forward quite a decent business case, but uh, if there are questions about Snowy, and I actually want to give another compliment to Snowy, uh, and that is around their not much discussed retailing business, uh, Red Energy and Lumo, uh, which uh, came out in the CanStar surveys just today as being uh, customers' preferred retailer of choice uh, in New South Wales, so that's a pretty good uh, reward. But Hydro Tasmania... Uh, uh, you know, the thing is, uh, it does require this extra DC transmission link. And uh, there's a lot of studies about how valuable that will be. They claim they can be cheaper than gas uh, plants in Victoria. Uh, uh, and also, of course, that it would facilitate more wind development in Tasmania, uh, which may be less correlated with wind in other states. Um, so, there's a, look, I think, uh, not to make a pun, too much of a pun about it, there's quite a lot of water to flow, not so much <laughs> over the bridge, but down the tunnel before we actually get to the end of this one. Yeah, look, I don't know. It just seems to be an awful lot of pork barrelling going around the place, isn't there? Oh, there's no question about that. If you want to get onto federal uh, government policy and compare, 
you know, in, in what I, <laughs> no doubt is a biased fashion, but I'd like to say it was unbiased. Uh, the federal government policy, which, you know, no one believes is credible. They've, it's just obvious bullshit. There's no other word for it around the Paris commitment uh, and using historic Kyoto. I mean, just the fact that you would do that shows that you're not taking it seriously. Uh, it's, it's really as simple as that. And then, as you say, you've got pork barreling and trying to uh, appeal to the uh, perhaps the mainstream of your party. But it's, I can't see the electorate taking it. It's like Daniel Andrews in Victoria said about the Greens in Victoria. You just can't take these guys seriously on this topic. Uh, you just know they don't really believe in it. Your, your um, article, Putting Lipstick on, on a Pig, uh, is, is about right. Um, and if you, I compare that, in all honesty, Mark Butler's uh, policies don't necessarily have universal appeal within the entirety of the Labor Party, as you can see with the split over Adani, but uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, using the CEFC, setting up an infrastructure fund, uh, working with the uh, organisations that we've already got, that is the Energy Security Board, AEMO, uh, using the ISP plan, which has been carefully developed. I mean, this is, uh, this is the way to do it. It's just obviously the way to do it. Well, I thought it was quite ironic that the, um, the business plan for the Tasmanian Hydro Link, the, what's called the Marinus Link, said, well, this is probably not going to offer any additional economic benefits unless the uh, transition to wind and solar is dramatically fast-tracked. Um, so I just wondered to the federal government, um, did you actually read the document um, that, uh, that you've just signed off on? And, 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 that's it. and the response came from, yes, we've read it, and no, we're not. In other words, no, we're not going to fast-track the development. So look, it's just really, it, it, it gets very frustrating and just to sort of see the government sort of starting off this week with this uh, redefined, um, or this lipstick on a pig policy with direct action, which they're now calling climate solutions, which is just an outrageous uh, thing. I, I do wonder how it does play in through the electorate because um, there's not, not much attention to detail. But anyway, look, David, um, just getting back to Simic Energy, though, it's interesting that how they're um, attacking the um, the business market. Uh, Mark Barrington says quite unequivocally that um, if you're going to provide um, new power generation or power generation to major suppliers or major, major customers, it's going to be renewables with firming capacity. So it'd be interesting to see to what extent they can actually sort of take business away from the major players. Well, I think the thing I'll be watching on the other side is what happens to coal prices. I mean, uh, the great advantage wind and solar PPAs have had in the past few years is not just that the gas price has been high, but the coal price has been way higher than people uh, forecast a couple of years back. And that's made uh, coal-fired electricity costs much higher than the industry itself believed. Uh, they've been able to fully recover that in prices so far. Um, uh, but if, if and if coal prices were to drop, uh, we'd we'd have to uh, reassess the situation. They've shown some signs of weakness recently, uh, but a lot depends on again around how China moves forward. Um, and, and so there's, it's it's not quite as straightforward as any one player would have you believe. What you're telling me though is another very very good um, reason that we should be um, trying to get as much wind and solar and um, another firming capacity into the market as quickly as possible because we're going to be paying a lot for power as this goes forward. Yeah, indeed. Anyone who thinks that we're going back to the $30 uh, a megawatt hour or $40 megawatt hour uh, of a, in, the, in the next few years, I think is kidding themselves. It's cost more than that to put wind and solar in place, despite what the industry sometimes says. 
<laughs> and uh, gas and coal cost a lot more than that. Pumped hydro starts needing about $60, $60 I reckon, at least. And I actually think Snowy too needs about $70 uh, or more, more than what the wind or solar electricity itself costs. Uh, so, so, you know, electricity is still not going to be that cheap. And that's still a problem for the two thirds. It's a problem for households, but it's even more of a problem for the two thirds of customers that, that aren't households that really depend on having competitive electricity. The, the whole we need uh, policy to get the cost of capital down. We need a steady pace of development and we all need down. We need a steady pace of development and we all need to be conscious that security and low prices, they're all goals. Absolutely. And um, presumably um, the other thing that we should have mentioned last week um, was this ridiculous modelling by Brian Fisher. Did you have a look at that just very quickly before we wrap up? I mean, um, oh. just complete nonsense. But the coalition at every doorstop, I've just if, if you go through the Prime Minister's Scott Morrison's press conferences and he, you know, he, he provides all the transcripts now. It's extraordinary. Every damn press conference he's quoting that that um, that modelling. It's um, it's utter garbage and um, it's driving me crazy. Well, I haven't looked at the modelling in detail. Uh, everyone's <laughs> entitled to have their models. Uh, there are models and then there's what actually happens, is what I'd say. Uh, Brian, Brian Fisher has a good uh, history at ABEAR, as you know, academic history, and, and uh, I'm not going to dismiss him out of hand, but I, I don't, certainly don't agree with any of his conclusions at all. <laughs> well, there you go. David, a pleasure. Um, let's, I'm looking forward to getting back next week. And um, thank you very much for your time. And um, thank you very much to our um, sponsors, Watchers and Solaray Energy. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.